You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. We need to take our listeners into the Islamic State in Mosul. When it was an insurgency, we took them into the groups in the sanctums. As the architects of its guerrilla military governance and propaganda operations, strategized about how to achieve the impossible, to capture major cities and not just implement an Islamic State, but the Caliphate. Now we need to take our listeners into the Islamic State's bureaucracy. Brutality is the word I keep using to describe life under the Islamic State. The brutality and the fear that it creates in people. It is impossible to comprehend unless you were there. But the Islamic State in Mosul were more than just brutal. Our listeners also need to appreciate the speed with which they implemented their system of government. The sophistication of what they did and how strategic the Islamic State was in almost everything it did. Let's start with speed. The Islamic State implemented a full-spectrum system of control, that is, its system of government, in Mosul, very quickly. And it did this primarily through co-option. The Islamic State's forces came into the city and, wherever possible, simply took over Iraqi government offices, basically told its staff to keep working. And it put Islamic State members in as managers. Correct. This was possible for a number of reasons. Most importantly, the Islamic State had a history in the city. They knew it well. The Islamic State also had highly sophisticated intelligence collection networks. So they knew where to go, who to copt, who to kill, who to keep, and who to replace. This all helped the Islamic State keep the city functioning after it took over. This strategy of parasitically just taking over government structures and institutions allowed the Islamic State to create a sense of stability for the population, make itself look more competent than it really was, and insert its own personnel as managers. The Islamic State had articulated its approach to running a state in a document titled Administration of the Islamic State, as the analyst and translator Ayman Tamimi highlights here. Principles in the Administration of the Islamic State is a position paper text written uh, in 2014 by an individual who was calling himself Abu Abdullah al-Masri and talked about the principles for administering the Islamic State uh, from a number of different angles, um, such as the need for uh, administration of training camps, uh, management of natural resources, uh, education, and uh, providing guidance for fighters during battle. And uh, this paper shows the importance uh, that the Islamic State uh, as an organization and its individual members put on the idea of an administ- a comprehensive administrative project for the Islamic State after the announcement of the caliphate. The Islamic State saw it as essential to project an image of being credible and functional as a state, as a government, because according to its ideology, success is the product of God's favor. So now... We understand the secret to why and how the Islamic State was able to implement its system of government so quickly. It basically just took over what was already there, changed the signs, 
changed the stamps on the paperwork and brought in its own managers. What about the sophistication of its governance efforts in Mosul? The reason we know so much about the Islamic State movement from inside the organization, how it thinks and strategizes, is because the Islamic State is obsessed with paperwork. It is obsessed with bureaucracy. And now that it had its government, this obsession went to another level. The Islamic State had departments and offices for basically everything. And paperwork for everything too. The program on extremisms, Devorah Maglan, perfectly captures the scope of the Islamic State's governance efforts in Mosul in this excerpt from our interview with her. Our research found that the Islamic State implemented a theological, legislative, gendered system of control that sought to penetrate all aspects of society, regulate social relationships, extract resources from local populations, and appropriate those resources for their own gain. The Islamic State's system of control was a product of the group's efforts to address a dilemma faced by many ideologically motivated rebel governing actors. A constant balancing act between its ideology and the pragmatic issues that govern the actual application of its ideology. With this in mind, let's look at the Islamic State's approach to managing the economy as an example. Sure. The Islamic State's economic policies are interesting for two reasons. First, it may surprise people to hear that the Islamic State prioritizes market-based mechanisms rather than central direction to manage the economy. Here is Professor Hans Christensen from the University of Chicago, who studied the Islamic State's Department of Agriculture. The key insight is that the department seemed to prefer to use market-based mechanisms as opposed to centrally directing the allocation of resources. However, there were exceptions where the department intervened in the market, and this seemed to have occurred when the department perceived the market failure. For instance, there are examples of export restrictions and interventions against monopolies. One kind of intervention that appears to have been controversial is the use of price controls. So although there are those examples, one employee argues that price controls are against Sharia law, saying that God alone fixes prices. The Islamic State's approach to the economy is also interesting because, like every Islamic department, the Department of Agriculture, for example, was obsessed with record keeping. This was as much about collecting information to control the people as it was about improving government performance, as scholar Tati Fontani found. The files from the Department of Agriculture shows us the very strong internal control measures that ISIS kept over the people and territory it managed. What we see is a very little record-keeping of every single piece of land that was expropriated, together with the monitoring of the daily activity of every single farmer. To get an overarching view of the Islamic State as an organization in Mosul, it is important to consider how the group prioritized the roles that it assigned to its personnel. In a way, this allows us to reveal the difference between the Islamic State's stated and actual priorities. Here is Daniel Milton from West Point Military Academy's Combating Terrorism Center. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the group dedicated about 80% of its personnel to fighting on the front lines or carrying out other duties associated with its military effort. 
However, among the remaining fifth of its personnel, we find a wide array of other ministries in action trying to carry out the day-to-day functions of what a normal state would do. One important collection of individuals within this governance apparatus had the focus of law, order, and security. And despite what we might believe, this grouping of security personnel were not primarily part of the group's religious police, but were in charge of activities more commonly associated with regular police that we would see on our streets. They were doing things like monitoring and enforcing traffic rules, conducting criminal investigations, and so on. And Mosul was at the forefront of many of these governance activities, and we see this through the group's propaganda. This is the Islamic State system of control. This is how the Islamic State used violence and governance efforts to control the population. The Islamic State is doing something else that is at least equally important. The group is using its governance activities and propaganda to ingrain a system of meaning in the population. It wanted to shape the way people understood the world, themselves, and others through the lens of the Islamic State's ideology. The Islamic State understands that it can implement its system of control, its system of government, onto the population, using force and intimidation. It also knows that this will only go so far. But if it can get people to see the world through its system of meaning, by getting people to adopt its ideology, it becomes easier to govern. Why? Because people have a shared identity, a shared lens through which to understand the world. And so other things become comparatively easier, such as recruiting people into its ranks, and getting both tacit and active support from the population going forward. It is impossible to exaggerate how important this was to the Islamic State. Living under its occupation, it is as everything is designed to ingrain the system of meaning into our minds. Every department had two basic rules. One, to enforce the Islamic State's policies, whether those policies concern real estate, agriculture, law enforcement, justice, or whatever. Two, those activities were designed to reinforce the Islamic State's ideology. Put another way, the Islamic State in Mosul was a propaganda state. Everything worked towards enforcing and embedding Islamic State's propaganda into the minds of the people. At a local level, the Islamic State's outreach and proselytization, or dawah, activities played an especially important role in championing and reinforcing the Islamic State's system of meaning in the local population. The Washington Institute's Aaron Zellan has analysed the evolution of the Islamic State's dawah efforts from when it was an insurgency to its capture of Mosul and its institutionalisation into the Islamic State's bureaucracy as the dawah and mosques administration. After the Safwa movements, the tribal awakening, as well as the U.S. surge of troops and sort of an earlier iteration of the group being tactically defeated, at least, um, they wrote this internal memo called the Fallujah Memorandum. And what was interesting about it, uh, at the end of it, there was a section about the necessity of of uh, spreading Dawa. And this was in around uh, the 2000, December 2009, January 2010 time period. Um, so this is a couple of years before we saw the resurgence, but you started to see this change in their thinking that it was necessary to reach out more to the local populations, even if they themselves didn't really care about the populations uh, 
opinions since they viewed them as reaya uh, or subjects. Um, uh, but it was still important for them to pass their ideas to the local population so that it can be inculcated over time. At least that's from their perspective. Um, and eventually, as they're building themselves back up in 2013 in particular, you started to see them create these proto-structures related to Dao in Iraq and Syria. And then once they announced uh, you know, their self-created caliphate, this is when the Diwan al-Dawa al-Masajid was created. Um, and according to them, uh, it was to assume the maintenance of public interests and to protect the people's religion and security. Um, and according to ISIS itself, the Diwan's main function was concerned with calling people to God, which is sort of the essence of Dawa, um, and implementing it, preparing and appointing imams and preachers, holding uh, preparatory seminars and Sharia courses, and building and preparing mosques locally. Um, so I think it's very important um, in many ways because it's it's the way for them to uh, propose and share their ideas to the local population, whether at the mosque, whether it's on the streets, because they would go in the streets and pass out different pamphlets. Um, and then, you know, because they're training different imams uh, in, in these courses, it's a way of uh, cementing the ideas then to people when they're not necessarily maybe going every Friday, but in a day-to-day basis. I describe the Islamic State's da'wah activities as the group's internal domestic propaganda machine operating at the grassroots local level. It played a crucial role in winning over the population using a range of activities, including community events, public sermons, and games for kids. Really anything and everything to ingrain the Islamic State's ideology into the minds and behaviors of people. But also, in doing so, trying to prepare not just the current, but the next generation of Islamic State fighters. There is, perhaps, no better example than the Islamic State's Education Department. Here is Leela El-Sayed from Hidayah, whose team has engaged in the most extensive study of the Islamic State's Department of Education, its curriculum, and impact on Mosul's youth. In order for ISIS to embed its narratives or what we described as planting its poisonous seeds in the minds of its students, it projected a competitive system of meaning in its textbooks. This forced on students a lens through which they had to perceive the world. We found that education was not just a component of ISIS propaganda. It was actually at the heart of its approach to sustaining its perpetual war. I don't know whether the Islamic State genuinely believed that it could hold Mosul for uh, the long term, but it absolutely tried to exploit this opportunity. The opportunity to use the resources of a state to dig its roots as deeply as possible into the people. And by focusing on children, it was trying to invest in the future. Here is Mona Chung, who has worked extensively on the problems and opportunities facing Mosul's youth. ISIS spent a year recreating the entire school curricula in Mosul for students ages 6 to 17 to promote its own propaganda. Children, especially boys, were vulnerable targets to its action-packed videos, which ISIS played on large screens in public. In those videos, school books, and other propaganda tools, ISIS romanticized its perceived victories, 
normalized acts of brutality, but most importantly, it promoted a sense of belonging and purpose. The Islamic State's interpretation of Islam is central to its legitimacy claims. And once again, we need to return to this notion of exploitation in two regards. The first is how the Islamic State ideologically exploited religious concepts, in a sense, stretching their meaning and interpretation to fit its political agenda. Here is Rehan Ismail from the Australian National University. ISIS draws from pre-existing religious traditions. The group invokes history and radicalised religious concepts to justify actions against their enemies. The group looks to the first Saudi state, which was founded in 1744 as a model to be emulated, and Ibn Abdul Wahab, the scholar who at the time legitimised the Saudi state, exercised takfir against his enemies, and this is to the dismay of other Muslims. And drawing from pre-existing traditions, even if those traditions are doctrinally dubious, allows ISIS to offer a veneer of religious legitimacy for its actions. The second is just as important. The Islamic State also exploited the activism and uh, politicking of Islamist groups, such as the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood in Mosul, as elsewhere throughout the Middle East, mainstreamed the concept of an Islamic state and the resurgence of the caliphate, sectarian views, and the justification of violence. Now, to be clear, the Brotherhood interprets these concepts in ways that are somewhat different from how Al-Qaeda and Daesh did. But it's easy to see how some people, both members or simply people exposed to the Brotherhood narrative, could be swayed by the message of jihadist groups who offered the quick realization of what the Brotherhood had theorized for decades. The Brotherhood, in substance, created a, a fertile ideological environment for jihadist groups. That was Program on Extremism director Lorenzo Vedino. It is impossible to talk about the Islamic State from this period without mentioning its propaganda units. The world seemed almost mesmerized at times by its propaganda output from videos like Flames of War 1 and 2, and although the disbelievers dislike it, to magazines like its English-language Darbuk and the Arabic-language Al-Naba. The Islamic State didn't just centralise propaganda in its strategic thinking in some theoretical way. Its best and brightest spent time working in its media units. In fact, almost all of the Islamic State's top leaders had spent some time working in propaganda roles. When the Islamic State had the chance to control cities, as you said earlier, Omar, it immediately looked to implement what can only be described as a full-spectrum propaganda state. Between 2014 and 2016, propaganda coursed through everything that the Islamic State did on a day-to-day basis, whether violent or non-violent, whether jihad or governance. And I think that this is something that we often forget about. The fact that for every video that was published online on Telegram or Twitter, for every execution that made it into the headlines in Western media, there was so much more happening in the real world, happening in Iraq and Syria. Dawah or outreach officials roaming media kiosks, dozens of them across urban centers, uh, printed newspapers, cinemas. I mean, it was really uh, a huge part of what the Islamic State was about. That was Charlie Winter, an expert on Islamic State propaganda and co-author of the ISIS Reader. 
it is important for everyone to understand that the Islamic State used the propaganda to manipulate how it was seen by friends and enemies. It wanted to make itself look stronger and more effective than it really was. And as Audrey uh, Alexander from West Point Combating Terrorism Center highlights now, this included a projecting an inflated image of its cyber capabilities. When you look back at the Islamic State cyber capabilities, it's critical to highlight the disconnect that emerges between ISIS's projection of its abilities compared to its demonstrated skills. In some cases, alleged members of the group conducted activities that were made to look more technically advanced than they were. What is clear through this period is that the Islamic State's propaganda was achieving extraordinary reach and impact. This was evident in how the media responded to the latest Islamic State propaganda release and the way that the group's talking points found its way into the rhetoric of political leaders. It was also evident in the extraordinary, unprecedented wave of foreign fighters that joined the Islamic State's ranks. Here is American University scholar Chelsea Damon. By 2015, there was an estimated number of 30,000 foreign fighters from around 100 different countries who joined the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. The largest of these numbers came from Middle Eastern and North African nations, with Tunisia supplying the highest amount. Foreign fighters also came from Western nations, including Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. Large numbers also originated from countries like Indonesia, Russia, and the Caucasus. Two of the most important pathways for foreign fighters joining the Islamic State ranks, especially for those from the Middle East and North Africa, was through existing networks forced by their countrymen and as, basically, spillover from other conflicts in the region, especially Syria. Tunisian foreign fighters who fill the Islamic State ranks in record numbers are a great example of this trend. Here is Aaron Zilin, author of Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. It wasn't necessarily a new phenomenon. Um, you know, uh, with the aftermath of the revolution in Tunisia in 2011, as well as the uprisings in the Arab world in general, you started to see more movement of Tunisians being involved um, uh, locally, but then also when they went into Iraq and Syria. Um, in 2012 or so. Um, however, many Tunisians had been involved previously with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as well as the Islamic State of Iraq before 2011, um, many coming after the U.S. invasion in 2003 to join up with Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's uh, organization. Um, some of them uh, fought inside of Iraq, whereas others, they were in charge of some of the safe houses inside of Syria when the Assad regime was allowing uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Islamic State of Iraq to do this. The Islamic State had a system in place to process these foreign fighters, not just into its ranks and practical skills, but indoctrinated to champion the Islamic State's ideology, as Seamus Hughes details here. At its height, more than a thousand foreign fighters a week were crossing into Syria and feeding into the system. And when they got there, there was a well-worn structure to take them in, very bureaucratic in nature. You did three weeks of indoctrination camp, then they break you up into groups based on your language. So the English speakers, the Americans, the Brits, and the Aussies, 
would hear from so-called religious scholars who would espouse the benefits of ISIS. After that, you move to another camp for three weeks. You receive weapons training, explosives training. A foreign fighter, particularly from the United States, would be asked to join the external operations unit where they would plan attacks in their home country. In the U.S., the Islamic State was skillful in its ability to mobilize Americans to join. Prior to 2014, we had about a dozen cases a year. By 2014 itself, there were hundreds, a thousand active investigations in all 50 states. The FBI was completely overwhelmed. By the summer of 2014, a senior FBI official described it to me as the system blinking all red. Given the Islamic State's appalling treatment of women under its control, I'm sure many of our listeners are baffled by how women could possibly want to join the group, let alone travel from the other side of the world to do so. The Islamic State's propaganda appeals to women were crucial. Islamic State propaganda targeting women was overwhelmingly designed to be positive and empowering. But there was a bipolarity at play too. So while its propaganda presented this idealised picture of Islamic State women as mothers, wives and active contributors to the movement's goals, it portrayed other women as corruptors, undermining the Islamic State's agenda. Women were also used in Islamic State propaganda to shame men by portraying women as victims that needed saving or by portraying women as active contributors and later even fighters to shame male inaction. That was Kiri Inigram, a researcher from the University of Queensland, and she highlights yet another disparity between the image of life as shown in the Islamic State propaganda and reality for the people. Devora Margolin from the Programme on Extremism has looked extensively at the experiences of women under the Islamic State occupation. While much has been written about the women traveling to join ISIS, the reality of women's lives under the group's governance is much more complex. The group used its governance of large areas of Syria and Iraq to implement its ideology, which required men and women to practice full gender segregation in society. From the most hardened supporters to those occupied by the Islamic State, every aspect of day-to-day life was controlled as the group tried to regulate both the public and private lives of those under it. Women's movements, women's bodies, and women's free will were regulated. Women required male escorts to carry out even the most menial of everyday activities. And for those victimized by the group, specifically Yazidi and Christian women, the horrors were unspeakable. These perspectives are all vital for understanding not only the Islamic State's agenda in Mosul, but its brutality too. It was often the foreign fighters who were the most brutal, who were the most puritanical in their ideological beliefs. Here is Austin Doctor from the National Counterterrorism Innovation, Technology and Education Center at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. The composition of a rebel group's membership affects the probability that its fighters will abuse civilians. In particular, my work finds that the arrival of foreign fighters to an insurgency is typically bad news for local non-combatants. Armed groups that recruit foreign fighters tend to be responsible for far more civilian casualties and more systematic levels of sexual violence. Even when we account for differences in things like group ideology, rebel political objectives, and their fighting capacity. The picture that emerges here is frightening in its brutality, but also its sophistication. The strategic thinking that seems to have underpinned everything 